welcome again to Bayou City Fellowship. We're so, so grateful that you're here with us this morning. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 1, I got glasses this week, so I'm pretty excited about that, and I feel a lot smarter than I did last week, so I was really inspired by the intelligence that my glasses are giving me. And so we are going to try to do the first nine chapters of the book of Acts this morning and get out on time. So I'm pretty sure that we did that in the first service, so you should have nothing to worry about. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to start. I I love being married to someone who had a different growing up experience than I did. Amanda grew up here in Houston, so obviously a very large city. She went to a very large 5A high school. I was having a different experience in southwest Missouri. I grew up in a medium-sized town, but went to a smaller school and uh, Amanda is brilliant. She's just a brilliant person, has an amazing mind. And so she was doing like foreign language 15 in high school and, you know, algebra times 50 and AP courses, you know, these kinds of people. Meanwhile, up in southwest Missouri, I, I came to a, a crossroads in my education experience about my junior year where I realized I could do some deeper level algebra or I could take home ec classes. And I decided for the home ec classes. And so uh, I had some fantastic ones. My first one and one of my favorites was uh, a class called meal management. And we learned to not just eat food, but cook food. And not just cook food, but to manage the cooked food, meal management. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you did algebra? I bet it's been a long time. But when was the last time you ate? You know, so who's the dummy, you know? Part two to meal management was another food class called World Foods, and so instead of just managing the meals, we managed them with a Mexican variety or an Italian variety or a French variety, Um, World Foods. I also took a parenting class, Parenting One. They gave you a sack of flour, and then I duct taped one of my sister's baby dolls to it, and you had to carry it around for a couple of weeks, and uh, that was fun. And My favorite, though, home ec class, I took them all, honestly, was a class called Independent Living, which is a brilliant class because so many of our teenagers are having a hard time launching out of the houses, but they actually taught me in school how to get away from my parents. Parents, doesn't that sound like an amazing class for your teenagers to take? Get away from me. Independent Living. And so... All year long, we're learning in the classroom uh, how to balance a budget, what it costs to do this or that. And then at the end of the semester, we actually took a field trip to practice all these things. And so we got on the bus and they took us to a car lot and we worked with the car salesman on what it was like to negotiate a price, what it was like to borrow money from the car dealership and what a payment looked like and what interest looked like. And, and that whole experience they showed us. Then we got back on the bus, they took us to an apartment complex and we uh, met with the manager of the the apartment complex, and she showed us around an apartment, just like you would do if you were actually renting the apartment. And here's what it costs to rent this particular apartment, and here's what utilities usually cost, and renter's insurance. They taught us all these things. So by the time I got back on the bus that afternoon, I'm thinking to myself, I can do this. I can move out of my parents' house right now. I can get an apartment, that apartment. And then I remembered, I'm missing one key ingredient to all of this money. I don't have a job. My parents are completely funding my life right now. I was missing something very important. Uh, As a pastor, I probably shouldn't tell you things like this. Maybe you won't come back next week, but sometimes I read the Bible and I feel like I'm missing something. You know, like I'm reading the experience of 
these people in the Bible and I'm examining their information that they had and I'm thinking that's the same information that I have. I'm examining my intentions and my intentions are not always pure, they're not always good, but hopefully more often than not they are and I'm thinking I have the same intentions as these people, so I have the same information, I have the same intention and yet when I read it, the experience that they seem to be having in the scripture is nothing like what I'm experiencing. And what I mean is they are experiencing something and I am not. Has that ever happened to you? That you're reading and you're so happy for Peter and Paul and the disciples and these people in the Old Testament. So happy for them that they got to experiencing, experience these amazing things. And yet it's seems like a different life than the one we are forced to live. But what I want to do today is I want to do two things. I want to make you and I dissatisfied with any life less than the ones that we read about in the Scripture. And I want to show you what it seems to be missing, at least from my life. And this may be a message that I've only prepared for me. But I think for most of us, what we are missing is not the information. It's not the intention. Most of us want the right things most of the time. What we lack is the extraordinary power of God at work within the people of God. And that is the story of Acts. So Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been crucified. He's been resurrected. He's made appearances, first to the disciples and then to many people, and now he's getting ready to ascend into heaven. And he's gathered his disciples. We don't know if this is just 12 or more. And this is what he says to them in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Well, what they're meaning is, is are you, now that you've been resurrected from the dead, you can do whatever you want. Are you going to establish an earthly kingdom right here in Jerusalem? Verse 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there it is. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, this is not a message about the Holy Spirit. But we are going to talk about that probably in about a month or a month and a half from now. But look what he says. But you will receive power, extraordinary power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. So there are two things. One, there's a promise of power, but there's also the receiving of an assignment. See, God gives out power, extraordinary power, to his people to the degree that you are willing to take on an assignment from him. So what that means is if you are only willing to sit on your couch and think things about Jesus, then you do not have much of a hope of extraordinary power being at work in you. Listen, no one loves the ministry of the couch more than me. But that is not one that gets unusually empowered by God. But those who are willing, because God is always looking for someone who is willing willing to go beyond comfort, willing to go beyond risk. And he empowers those people who are willing. So no ministry for you, no power for you. This is why we fall into the trap of 
blessing, turn to the person on your left and say, be blessed. Turn to the person on the right and say, you too. We love this word blessed, don't we? We say it all the time. Bless him, God, be with him and bless him. Bless my kids as they go to school today. Bless me at work. Bless our church. It's just a word that we, we say. Now, blessing is very biblical. But when you read it in its biblical context, they seem to mean it. When you hear it in our context, we seem to not know what else to say. It's just what we pray when we don't know what to pray. But what if instead of saying bless, we replaced it with empower? So it's not bless my kids at school today. It's empower my children as they go to school today. Well, empower them to what? Empower them to be the light of the world, the light of Christ in their school and in their class. See, ministry and power. It's not bless me as I go to work anymore. It's empower me as I go to work. Well, if you're going to be empowered at work, what does that mean? It means that you need a ministry at work. Maybe you have the ministry of modeling what Jesus-centered integrity looks like in a place of business. Ministry and power, assignment and extraordinary power, those things go together. And the amazing thing about being a follower of Jesus is if you are willing, He will give you a ministry. He will give you an assignment. And if He gives you the vision, He will give you the provision of His power. Acts chapter 2. Jesus ascends up into heaven. They're like, now what? Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, that was a holiday for them. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the disciples are together and we don't know if it's a large group of disciples or just the 11 plus the one they appointed at the end of chapter 1. We don't know who's in this room, but they're there and they're waiting just like Jesus had instructed them to do in Acts 1-8. And they're there, and all of a sudden, there's this loud rushing wind. There's no wind, it's just the sound of the rushing wind. And all of a sudden, these tongues of fire, so you can imagine your tongue, but if your tongue was made of fire, coming down and resting on each one of them. So, pretty normal experience, I'm sure, for most of us. And they begin to speak in utterances that they don't know. They speak in in some kind of language and utterance that they were not acquainted with. Chapter uh, 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So a lot of people were gathered together in Jerusalem at that time for the holiday of Pentecost. And at this sound, the multitude came together. So the wind is bringing them to see what is going on. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then they're going to list all the languages and types of people that are there in this crowd. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. 
Now, a lot of people believe that the miracle is taking place, that when the disciples are speaking these utterances, they are actually speaking these languages. I believe, and I'm not sure that you can say it definitively, so I may be wrong, so you believe whatever you want, but I believe the miracle is not in what they're saying, but in the hearing. Because later on in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is going to write to the church to tell them how to, to use this gift of speaking in tongues, which we first see here, how to organize it. And he calls it uh, uh, speaking in mysteries, and he, he calls it the utterance of angels. And so I believe the miracle is not in what they're saying, that they're saying something that our ears have never heard. They're speaking a language of heaven, and what these people are hearing is languages of the earth, their own languages. But a miracle is happening. Something holy is happening. And look how the people, the crowd, respond. Verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So some people are going, Man, this is crazy. And other people are going, Man, they're crazy. And they're also drunk. So you can imagine coming to church today and leaving, and people are like, how was Bayou City Fellowship out in Cyprus? And they're like, you're like, man, it was fantastic. The people are super friendly, and they're super friendly because they're super drunk there. (laughs) That's the accusation that is being laid down at the feet of the apostles. But look what Peter does, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in In Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So what he's saying is, we're not drunk because it's like only like nine in the morning, you know. It's not time to be drunk yet, so we're not drunk. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be... God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I mean, there's enough here to preach a hundred sermons and then there's enough here for another church to preach a hundred sermons and then us to compare all of our sermons. But what is astonishing to me today is that when this miracle of this language happens. The crowd is going, these people are crazy. And Peter says, no, this was supposed to happen. What I've found both in the scripture and in experience is that the extraordinary power of God, you know who it lands on? It lands on the people who want it and it lands on the people who expect it. So if just you and I are just minding our own business, living our own life, doing our thing, sitting on our couch, we should have no no expectation that God's power would reside in us, move in us, be expressed through us. But the people who want it and the people who expect it are the ones who are empowered in this way. I love this story in Acts, after some of the disciples have been arrested. And it says then they, they come home, like they come home from being arrested, and they're with the other disciples there, followers of Jesus. And they're like, man, we got arrested. And it's like they're celebrating because they were counted worthy to suffer in Jesus' name. And then they start praying, and they start praying these amazing things. In verse 29 of chapter 4, it says, this is their prayer. And now look, Lord, look upon your 
their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And check this out. And when they had prayed, the, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. So what that means is it means that something was happening so holy in their prayers that the building could not contain the holiness. The building could not contain the glory of their prayers and their faith, the the faith that was assembled in that room. And so what I like to remind myself and ask myself, and I want to ask you today, have you ever once been in any kind of meeting of prayer or any kind of church gathering where you're like on the way there? Hey, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder if there's going to be an earthquake because God's spirit shows up so much when we pray. Like, has that ever crossed anyone's mind ever? No, why? Because it doesn't happen to us. That's not the kinds of things that would happen. But what if it wasn't happening because none of us were considering it a possibility? What if these things that we're reading about in the scripture are not because God doesn't do those things anymore, but because we are people who don't believe he does those things anymore? What if the problem is not his timing and his way and what he wants to do? What, is the, what if the problem is me and my unbelief? We have evidence in the scripture of that in the Gospels. It says that Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he wants to do mighty works. But it says that Jesus could not, that he was prevented because of their unbelief. Can you imagine how how scary would that be if, if we showed up to church today And Jesus, from the right hand of the Father, was like, man, I'm going to pour out my power and signs and wonders and miracles and the miraculous on Bayou City Fellowship in Cyprus. I don't know why, but just my my eyes are on them today, and there's people who need there, and I'm going to do something great in their midst today. But then he's seeing this all come in the parking lot, and he's seeing what we were thinking this morning when we wake up, and he's like, man, I wanted to. I wanted to, but no, there's not one person in that room that believes that I actually might. What if the problem is not God's timing? What if it's just our expectation? What if some of those miracles that we read in the scripture are really possible for you? And what would it look like for you to start changing your thinking from, no, I'm going to expect that God would do the miraculous in my life. That he would do the supernatural in my life. I'm going to expect that because I'm a part of the people of God in Christ, that I have the extraordinary power of God available to me. If you want to know who God favors, you ever wanted that? You ever wanted to know, like, how can I guarantee that the windows of heaven heaven are open and God's favor just pours down on me? The Bible gives us the way. God favors faith. You don't need a lot of faith, in fact. You just need a tiny little mustard seed. He favors faith. So if you want some of this extraordinary power. It cannot happen with unbelief. It happens with faith. Acts chapter 3. This crazy thing happens. Tongues of fire, and maybe they're drunk, and maybe they're not, and Peter says we're not, and this is what was supposed to happen. And Now it turns to specific actions. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. 
And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So this is a very normal experience. People coming into the temple, the sick, the wounded, the lame, they would gather at the gates of the temple because people are going to worship God. They got generosity. It's just a natural place. And it was a part of your temple going experience that you would reach out and you would give some kind of offering to those who were sick. And so this seems to be a normal experience. But then what happens in verse 6? But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. How scared do you think Peter and John were when they stopped and they told this man to look at them? See, they had seen Jesus do this probably hundreds of times. They had followed him around three years. They had seen him heal all kinds of people. They had seen it done. But as far as we know, they had never repeated it just in this way. Do you think they were nervous? I mean, well, just think, would you be nervous? If you had read all these stories about Jesus healing these people, and then you were going to visit somebody in the hospital, and they had broken their legs or something happened, they were, whatever, and you walk into the hospital room, you got your gown on, you got the mask on, you whatever, and you go, look at me. And they would probably be like, leave the room. <laughs> and you said to that person laying in the hospital bed, get up, you're fine, go home. If you're not sure how you would feel, try it out this week. Just roll into the hospital. I commission you as clergy if you want the front parking space. <laughs> You'd be terrified, right? You'd be scared. Because you've seen this extraordinary power in someone else, but you've never put it into play yourself. You've never taken the risk yourself. And this is why most of us only read about things like this or maybe hear about other people doing those things because to do it ourselves in that moment is risky and it's scary and, and most of us are not willing to do that. I remember the very first time that I ever anointed someone with oil and prayed for their healing. The, the book of James says that if you're sick, you should come to the pastors and they will pray for you and they will anoint you with oil. And, and, and there was somebody in our church who was very, very sick and, and they needed some desperate prayer. And Amanda's the one always volunteering me to go and pray for people and bring the oil. I have a little olive oil thing because that's the, script, the kind of oil in the scripture and I didn't have a container for it. And so I put it in an empty scope bottle so you can see the kind of classy pastor that I am. And so I'm rolling into this person's house. Amanda's volunteering me to go over there and pray. And I got my scope bottle full of olive oil and and I bring, brought some friends with me to come and, and to help. And I was so nervous because this was going to be measurable. They were either going to know that these prayers worked or they were going to know that they didn't work. And, and I don't know what's special about the olive oil, probably nothing, but God's word somehow with the faith of the person being prayed for and the faith of the person doing the praying and the olive oil and God's will somehow in there, he's given that act power. And even when I was putting it on 
their hands and neck, I'm thinking to myself, please, please answer this request because I don't know what I'm going to say to them if it doesn't work out. Listen, God has gifted you with extraordinary power, not because you deserve it or you're awesome, but because you are a part of the people of God. But you have to put that into play personally. And when you do, it's scary. You may be getting ready to pray for somebody and you are just going to do a bless them and help them. But in that moment, you can feel faith rising up in you to pray for something very specific for their healing, for their freedom. And you're going to have to have the courage to say it out loud. God, I ask you for their healing right now. And that's scary because what if it doesn't work? Maybe you're praying for somebody and he, he puts a, a word in you for somebody, just a message that you should go and deliver to this friend of yours. You weren't asking for it, you weren't looking for it, but it's like he put it deep in your heart and it's on fire and you can't help but to say it, but you're going to have to pick up the phone and say, hey, can we get together? You're going to have to send a text message and say, hey, I want to talk to you. You're going to have to pull them aside after church and say, man, this is crazy and, and this may not mean anything, but I feel like God is saying this to you. And that's scary. But this is the difference between people who read about these stories and people who live these stories. They take the extraordinary power that God has put in them through the Holy Spirit and put it into play, just like James and John did. Acts chapter 4, James and John are arrested. So they, they heal this man and they preach on the platform of credibility that this healing brought because it attracted quite a large crowd because everybody knew this guy, that he stood at the gate and he was begging all the time. And so people are amazed. And Peter and John used that amazement as an opportunity to preach about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. And the religious leaders didn't like that. And so they end up being arrested. See, when God's extraordinary power is poured out, pressure around us increases. And when the pressure around us increases, God's extraordinary power is poured out. We see this in history, like in the early 1500s, it was believed that common people like you and I, we could not handle God's word. So they didn't put it in any kind of language that people like you and I would understand. They just kept it in one language that only the most elite and most trained could, could read because they were afraid of what you and I might do with it. But there were some people who believed that God's word was for everybody, and so they risked their lives translating it into common languages, and some real intense persecution happened there in the early 1500s, and people ended up losing their lives because they were trying to get the scripture into the hands of people like you and I. But that persecution couldn't stop God's word from spreading like wildfire. We see it now in places like China, where communism is trying to choke out the church and Christianity, but yet China is one of the fastest growing churches in the world, both above ground and underground. Because when the pressure intensifies, God's power intensifies. When God's power intensifies, that pressure will intensify. We feel this pressure right now. I don't believe that any of us could say that we're being persecuted, but I definitely feel pressure. You can't just walk into any place, your place of business or any conversation and just say, hey, here's what the Bible says and I believe it too you would feel some hesitation about that because what the Bible says is not really that fashionable right now. And we're not experiencing persecution, but we are feeling pressure, and that should be okay with us. We shouldn't be scared of that. We should just know that the more pressure we feel, the more of the extraordinary power of God is available to us and ready for us. Acts chapter 5, 
they've been set free from prison. They're not arrested anymore, but that pressure is still there. But look how the culture around them relates to them. Chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. That's a section of the temple in Jerusalem. And none of the rest, that's all the other people there in the temple, all the regular people, the non-Christians, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So you imagine this scenario, Peter, John, the other disciples, they're hanging out over in Solomon's portico, this one section of the scripture, and they're worshiping Jesus in the temple, and they're praying to Jesus, and they're singing songs to Jesus, and they're gathering in Jesus' name. Everybody else is there doing the normal temple thing. And people are watching what's happening over there, and they're disagreeing with what's happening over there. They don't believe in Jesus. They believe in a Messiah to come, but Jesus wasn't the Messiah because he was crucified. There's a big scam. So they don't believe, and yet... They hold the people over there in Solomon's portico, the Christians, in high esteem. See, the pressure is not going to relent here in America, I don't believe. I don't believe we're going to wake up in three weeks and go, oh, being a Christian is amazingly easy, and now the whole culture agrees with everything that we agree with. I don't think that's going to happen, but we can still be held in high esteem in our culture. But not by religious vocabulary. Not by just talking about spiritual things. Not just by simply going, well, I believe this because the Bible believes this. No, what will hold us in high esteem with our culture, even as they continually disagree with what we agree with in the Scripture, is the results. Is the fruit from your life. See, there may be nobody on your street who really is cheering you on today as you come to church. And when you drive back down your street after you eat lunch today... They'll be like, well, those are weird people going to church again. How many times a week do they go? And you try to bring it up, and anytime you bring up the church word or the Jesus word, the conversation just goes away. And they may think you're the weirdest people on planet Earth. But if they can look into your house and go, man, I, I don't get them, and they are weird, but I cannot deny that it works for them. I cannot deny that Even though they are not perfect, somehow what happens in their home is uniquely different than what happens in our home. When they see the extraordinary power of God at work in you, even though they do not agree with you, they will hold you in high esteem. But if we just bring religious vocabulary and religious practice into this pressurized culture, our reputation will hit the ground. It's the extraordinary power of God that separates us. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, the pressure continues. In fact, it reaches its apex. Because Stephen, a young man selected as one of the first deacons, a brilliant communicator of the gospel, was killed because he was communicating the gospel of Jesus. Very similar to Miriam, right now a 27-year-old woman in the Sudan who this past week was sentenced to death because she refused to say that she did not believe in Jesus. Or Pastor Saeed, an Iranian-American who has been imprisoned in Iran for over a year now because he was doing ministry in the name of Jesus in his homeland. See, the book of Acts is alive and well around the world. 
It's just not alive and well in me. And maybe in you. But even though this pressure may increase to the ultimate, it can't be stopped. Because look what happens in Acts chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So persecution, pressure, it flames up. But look what happens. The church scatters away from Jerusalem, but people can be stopped through persecution, but the gospel cannot be stopped. People can be thwarted and limited, but the power of God cannot be limited. Because when the persecution arose to try to suppress what happened, it just scattered the message and it scattered the power. Every week we're coming together, gathering together. In Jesus' name, encouraging each other in these things, opening the word of God, reminding each other, I believe, do you believe, do you believe, you believe. That encourages me to believe. We're together, we sing the songs of God, we open up the word of God, we pray to God, and then we scatter. But as we scatter, we want to scatter with the gospel of Jesus and the power of Jesus. Wherever you go, you take the good news of Jesus. And you take the power of God. And in Acts chapter 9, there's a shift. And if you've ever read the book of Acts from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 9, you can see it's obvious here because it's like a baton gets passed off from those earliest apostles, Peter and John and James, to, to Paul, who was once known as Saul, who was the one we see here persecuting the church of God. This is the way of Jesus. It's our race for a while, and then it's someone else's race. And then someone else's turn. About a year ago, Jackson was, he, I've told you before, I think, that he's, he's totally devastated that I'm a pastor. Like, he's just so disappointed for me because I'm not able to be a cool astronaut, is what he says. And, and uh, he tried a while ago to, like, talk me into being an astronaut. Now it's like, I know you're a pastor, but, like, you can still be an astronaut. And I told him, no, it's too late for me. You know, I can't be an astronaut. But he's holding out hope. And so in the midst of that conversation of him just really feeling sorry for me, he's, he wants to know, like, what a pastor does. And what my job is. And so I'm trying to explain to him what it's like to lead a church and what the responsibilities are and all that. And he's like, well, what's mommy's job? And I'm like, she's there with me. It's Curtis and Amanda. And we're doing this thing together. And she's leading people and I'm leading people. It's a beautiful thing. And he, he thinks about it for a second and he goes, so I, I, I guess that makes me the third boss of the church. And I was like, no, you've, you've totally misunderstood. Uh, but on the inside, I was kind of thrilled that he saw himself as a part of it. That it wasn't just something that I did or mommy and I did, but that we do as a family. I was, I was happy that he, he thought that way because here's the reality, and I think about this all the time, that my hope and dream is that when I am 80 years old, you have to drag me from out behind this pulpit 
That's 47 years from now. So I got a while. So you might want to transfer churches now if you don't like it. But I want them to drag me down and to be like, oh man, it's not your turn anymore. And they'll do that same thing to you because by then you'll be too old to show up early and set stuff up and tear stuff down and and we'll pass the baton off to our kids and our grandkids. What kind of church are we going to hand down to them? Are we going to hand down to them a, a, a church that has good information? A church that has good intention? Or a church that has the extraordinary power of God pulsing through its veins? That's what I want to pass down. That's what I want to live. I'm not content to just read about the power of God. I want to taste it. And I bet you do too. So you're thinking, well, how do I, how do I get it? I'm guessing I don't have it now. How, how do I get it? I don't know. At least I don't know how you're going to get it. I know how it came to me, or at least a version. I mean, see, I, I preached my very first sermon when I was 17 years old. My, I grew up in a, a pretty small church in southwest Missouri, and we had Sunday night church, and that crowd was even smaller than the Sunday morning crowd, so it was pretty low risk for my pastor, and so he asked me to preach that night, and, and so I was terrified of, of doing a bad job. I, I Really what I was terrified is I was going to get up, and I was going to start, and then at some point, about four sentences in, I was going to forget everything that I ever knew. Not everything that I plan on saying, but like everything that I ever knew, and like I was going to get who Jesus was, and I was going to get everybody. I was just totally terrified of that. So I thought, well, the best way to make sure that that doesn't happen is I'm going to memorize the message. I'm going to memorize it. And so that's what I did. I wrote it and I got it all prepared. And then I started practicing. I'd practice it in my bedroom, you know, in front of the mirror. And I'd say all the points and I'd get all real fiery about it in the right moments. And then when I'd make a joke, I'd give the appropriate pause for laughter, you know, there in my room. And sometimes I'd fake the laughter, you know, and, and you, it was always big laughing, obviously. And and practiced it and practiced it and practiced it. That Sunday night, church came and, and uh, I, I showed up early to church and I got tucked away in the, one of them real small rooms, dark rooms in the corner of the church to, to practice it one more time, to go over it one more time just to make sure that I had it down. And, and I'm back there and I'm just going for it. I mean, out loud, I'm, pra- I'm just doing it. And some of my friends showed up early to pray for me because they love Jesus and they love me. And I was super frustrated by it because they just barged in and there I was talking to myself, you know, which is very embarrassing. And, and I'm thinking, well, I, now I'm embarrassed. How much more embarrassed am I going to be 15 minutes from now when I'm doing this in front of like 100 people? And the church starts, I get up, and it was like somebody pushed play and just, brrr, just the whole thing came out of my mouth. I preached the 30-minute message in like 12 minutes. I mean, just boom. But after I finished, I got down off the stage, and church is over, and people start coming up to me, and I was the home kid. I was the kid from home, and, you know, and, and they started saying, man, that was so good. That was so great. Way to go. That was awesome. I was real blessed by that. Thank you. So I, I just thought that that's what preaching was, is not embarrassing yourself and doing a good job. And because 
I didn't embarrass myself and I didn't embarrass my pastor and I didn't embarrass my family. Somebody else gave me an opportunity and then I started preaching all the time and the same thing would happen. I'd get down off the stage and people would come forward and say, that was great. Really blessed by that. Thank you. And then they would leave. And for like 11 years, the size of the audience kept getting bigger because I practiced all the time and I kept getting better. And I got older and smarter and so the messages got a little bit more helpful and a little bit more insightful. I mean, I didn't have glasses then, so not like super smart, but but still the same thing. Good job. That was great. Thanks for being here. I was blessed by that. About four years ago, I think I was 29. I was preaching to the biggest crowd week after week that I ever preached to. And I was reading the book of Acts at the same time, thinking to myself, when Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and preaches what appears to be the most boring message ever preached, thousands of people were saved. Nobody came up to him and was like, that was great. That was awesome. Way to go. I was blessed. And I didn't understand why what I was reading and what I believed was not real for me. It was just somebody else's story. And there was a little garden little yard at the office that I was working at. It had a real tall trees and no grass. It was kind of secluded. And I remember going out there in the midst of all this, in the midst of preaching, and that was good, and I'm so happy for you, and I appreciate that, and that was nice, and I appreciate the funny story, and then reading the book of Acts and seeing what's happening there and walking around in a circle going, I will trade in every post-message affirmation for the rest of my life for one taste of the kind of power that they had in the scripture. People can leave and go, that was the worst message I have ever heard. But I am not the same. I wouldn't care if people left and went to their friends and said, you got to come to my church because my pastor is so terrible. But when he opens his mouth, something happens to me. I can't explain it. I don't know what it is, but I can feel my heart beating faster. I can feel the, the, the hair on the back of my neck start to tingle. And I can sense that the Spirit of God is in my midst. If no one ever, ever tells me I did a good job ever again, I'm fine with that. As long as somebody is different. As long as I know just one fraction of the extraordinary power. I'm tired of reading somebody else's stories. I want a story of my own. And I believe God still writes stories like that. I believe the only thing that's changed is me. And maybe you want that too. Maybe you're tired of reading somebody else's story of extraordinary power. It's available to you, not because you deserve it, because Jesus purchased it for you and gave it to you.
Let's be people not of good information and good intentions, but the people of God filled to the max with the extraordinary power of God. Let's pray. you just take a second and if you're in need today it feels like something is missing from your life why don't you just say it in your own words it may take more than one prayer but it can start today God use me fill me do in me what I see you do in your word you stand to your feet and we're going to close and get out of here we always close our services with a time of prayer but we're going to do something a little bit different this week and instead of having our prayer ministry team going to come forward we're just all going to stay where we are today but that doesn't mean we're not going to pray because the kind of prayer that prepares the way for this kind of power is real and earnest prayer it's not a one time prayer if I pray this then it's fine after that. It's every day, the persistent widow. I'm not letting you go, God, until you give me what I'm asking for. And that prayer can start today right here where you are. So if you wouldn't mind bowing your heads and closing your eyes, and just as an act of faith today and confession, if you realize that you're missing something, if you're reading the Bible and you're like, that's not my experience at all, but I want it to be my experience. I want to know the extraordinary power of God in my life. Would you just boldly, as no one's looking around, the spirit of prayer, just raise your hand. I'm missing something and I, I need what we're talking about today. I need it. Yeah. I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to sing and you keep praying where you are. If you want to pray as a husband and wife or a couple of friends you came with or you just want to pray by yourself, you're free to do that. God, I pray for those who are lifting their hands now. You see the hands and more than that, you see the faith. And I pray you would favor their faith today. I pray that you would give them everything they need and you would give them more than they need. And I pray that they would taste what it feels like to be used powerfully by you. I pray for every person who's not a believer today. And that's what they're missing. They're not missing more information. They're not missing more answers. They're missing a commitment to Jesus. I pray that today would be the day of faith for them. That they would turn to you and you would save them today. In Jesus' name.